Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God says. We don't want to be arrogant. We want to know what the Bible says, and we want to rightly divide it. We want to compare Scripture to Scripture. We want to be very careful to make sure that we know what we believe. Uh, We are today, uh, our first question is... um, one that I have chosen, and that is, is prophecy, is this prophecy Russia at war? So there's a lot of people asking this question now. Uh, Russia is, it looks like, about to invade uh, the Ukraine, and um, we are, there are a lot of other things like the pandemic. Um, There have been swarms in various parts of the world. So there have been a lot of things that look like they are signs of the end. So I thought it would be good for us to ask this question as it seems like we are at the brink of war uh, right now. Uh, I've got a section of scripture ready to go here, Matthew 24 where Jesus was asked by his disciples when the end was going to be. And this is his answer. He says, it says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And we know from other passages that false teaching is a sign of the last days. Doctrines of demons, men heaping up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. And today, the most popular preachers are false teachers. And uh, that's a sign of the last days. And Jesus says, you be careful. Make sure that you're not deceived. The responsibility as to whether or not you are deceived is on you. You have to make sure that you are living and searching for the truth. So he says, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Now, this means that throughout history, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. This is not a sign of the last days. It is, he's saying, this is going to be throughout history. And then he goes on to say, and gives a little more information. He says, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, and the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, and pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows there is birth pains. So the idea is that these are the beginning and they will get more intense as time goes on. The world is going to get more and more out of control. Both Daniel and Revelation talk about the righteous becoming more righteous and the ungodly becoming more ungodly. There's a polarization of things that are happening in the world today, and these are the beginning of sorrows. He says to them, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. That doesn't mean the great tribulation. He's talking about church history. He says, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's happening. And because lawlessness will abound, that's happening. We see lawlessness not only in the United States, but abounding throughout the world. 
and the love of many will grow cold. Think about it. People hate people just because of what political party they're a part of. They hate people because they're not a part of their political party. So, the love of many is growing cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all of the nations, and then the end will come. So, yes, in a way, this war is a, let me go ahead and get over out of this uh, scriptures here. In a way, this war is a sign because Jesus said these things are going to happen and they're going to be increasing. We have war in Syria. We have war in other parts of the world as well. And now it looks like we're at the brink of war with Russia. But Ezekiel 38 and 39 talk about a coalition of nations that include Russia, Turkey, uh, and um, Kush, what, what would be the Sudan today, um, Libya, it gives a lot of other nations that are there, um, most of which today are Muslim nations that are going to attack Israel. Muslim nations don't try to hide the fact that they hate Israel and they want to destroy them, that they hate the United States and they want to destroy them. And so this could be the start of that war. We don't know for sure. And anybody who says, well, this is the start of that war. Well, I, you know, I don't know. You, you can be really, sometimes people are really confident in things and they don't ever have to come back and say, I was wrong about that. But it might be, we might be seeing the beginning of things. Who in the world is going to stop a coalition? Not the United States right now, it doesn't seem. The United States isn't ready to step up and stop a coalition from attacking Israel. Iran, by the way, is also in that coalition. And this is the first time in history that you have Russia and Iran on the same side. And it's, told, it's foretold in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's also the first generation that has Israel as a nation. For almost 2,000 years, they were scattered and Jerusalem was occupied by Gentiles and Israel laid barren. But God said in Ezekiel 36, 37, get ready to the mountains of Israel for my people are about to come and they will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. And today there are some close to 6 million Jews that are in Israel and Jerusalem is occupied again by Israel. And Jesus said that Jerusalem would be occupied by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And the Gentiles is mentioned again in Romans 11, 25 and 26, I think, where it says that Blindness in part has happened to Israel, but when the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, they will all be saved. Now, I'm paraphrasing that passage, but that's what it says. So, when we see major earthquakes, pestilence, false teachings, wars, these are meant to remind us that this world is marching towards the last days, and, and we are seeing them all. It seems like they are all happening at the same time. And it could be God saying to us, get things right. Whenever you see something like this, it ought to be a reminder that you need to lose your life. Jesus said, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you will save it. Interestingly enough, he said that in Matthew uh, 
he said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation, which we know is the middle of the tribulation period, that those who are alive then, not to go down into their house and get anything, but to leave. And in Luke 17, he says, for if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. So if you're trying to go, oh, I'm going to save my life, I want to live for myself, you're going to end up losing it, saving, losing it. But if you, if you lose your life now and you receive Christ, the Messiah, and you live for him, then you will save your life. So the Bible has a lot to say about the last days and it certainly seems like we are living in it. It tells us that people will be lovers of themselves, that they will be proud. There's just this whole list of what people are going to be like and it fits within the last days. Now, I also want to give you an invitation to our conference. Um, let me see if I can pull that up really quick. Um, well, there we go. All right. Let me put this up here on the screen for you. I want to give you an invitation to our conference. We have a conference uh, that is in the beginning of March. It is a pastors and leadership conference that is held at our church. Uh, and we're going to be talking about prophecy specifically and how it fits into where we are today. Uh, I think that it would be incredibly informative for you if you came out to our conference. Uh, you can go to calvarytucson.com if you are interested in attending that. All right. So I'm glad to have you guys join us today. I hope that you are, things are going well with you. I hope you're staying close to Jesus, that you're loving him. It's good to see you guys online. Say hi if you're popping on. Um, thank you for joining us. We're going to be answering your questions. So you can write the word question or you could put a Q or a question mark in front of your question and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it and we'll get to uh, your questions. I know we have a lot of questions about the last days and we may see more of them. So our first question today comes from Albert. Albert says, hello, pastor. Hi, Albert, good to see you. Uh, Psalms 22, 16 through 18. Do you believe David is speaking firsthand of his own experience or do you think the Holy Spirit was only prophesying through him of Jesus' crucifixion? Thank you. Uh, yeah, let's go to that passage. Uh, it, is, it is definitely a prophecy and it is definitely an awesome passage that is speaking about Jesus. And it is one of the strongest, really, one of the strongest prophecies that you find in the scriptures. Let's go ahead and go to verses 16 through 18 and we'll look at those. All right. Um, let's see, let's go back a little bit here. Um, let's go back to verse 11 and we'll pick it up there. All right. And it says, let me get here. There we go. All right. So in verse 11, it says, uh, be, uh, this is someone who's going through something horrific. In the very beginning of this psalm, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as you read through this psalm, it becomes obvious that it is Jesus. Remember, Jesus was fully human and fully man. He was beaten all night long. He was scourged. He was mocked. 
He was nailed to a cross and I believe that he went into shock just like any human would who would go through this and Jesus was going to go through it. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? He's disoriented on the cross like anyone would be. And then he begins to talk about his experience. And he says in verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near me and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. The strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. When someone was crucified, they would be tied or nailed to a tree, a cross, and then they would hang forward and the weight would crush their lungs and their heart and they would feel the pressure in their chest. They did a study where they crucified young men, not nails, but just ropes, tied them up to see how long they could last on the cross. This is young men, young, strong men in their 20s. And the longest lasted 15 minutes before they demanded to come down from the cross because of how excruciating it was. He says, my heart is like wax that melts within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaw. Jesus said, I thirst. You have brought me to the dust of death. The dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Literally, it says there, lions at my hands and my feet. Some say that that doesn't mean pierced, but the Septuagint, which was finished 165 years before the New Testament, uses the word pierce. So they understood it to mean lions at my hands and feet. They pierced my hands and feet. I count all of my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garment among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Do not be far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horn of the wild oxen. The King James Version, by the way, says unicorn there. The 1611 King James said unicorn. Um, they thought, I don't know if they thought unicorns existed or not. You have answered me. I will declare my name among, okay. So then he says, this is a, a transition point. Uh, and from the horns of the wild oxen. Then he says, you have answered me. What does he mean? You've answered me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he goes through all that he's facing. And then he says, you've answered me. I will declare your name among the brethren. And the rest of Psalms 22 is amazing because he talks not only about Israel, you've answered me, I'm being crucified for the brethren and I, I will declare your name. That is a point of resurrection. This is a passage that talks about Jesus being resurrected. You have answered me, I will declare your name among the brethren, among Israel. And then he says, among the nations, the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, and to a people that have not yet been born. It's an amazing chapter that talks about Jesus being crucified for Israel, for Gentiles, and for people that haven't yet been born. Take time to really study it and look at it. Now, as to your question, is he talking about himself or is, he ta is this just a strict prophecy? And I, here's what I believe, all right? I, I don't want to be, I don't want to say this is for sure, okay, Albert? But here's what I believe. I believe that David was going through it. I think he's going through something here and he's pouring out his heart. And as he does this, the spirit of God comes upon him and gives him a prophecy of the 
king who will sit on the throne of David in the future. And so he gives this amazing prophecy of crucifixion a thousand years before crucifixion was ever invented, which is amazing. Later on, it would be invented as a way, uh, as the worst way to die. That's the crucifixion. Uh, Jordan Peterson was talking to Joe Rogan about the crucifixion and talked about this being the worst thing that could happen to anybody. The worst way to die. Betrayed by your best friend. You didn't do anything wrong. They chose a criminal to release rather than you. Uh, and, and all of this is foretold. And so, I believe that David is going through something and the Spirit of God comes upon him and he gives us this absolutely amazing prophecy. I think it's so amazing that when someone reads it who is an atheist, that they, they immediately are taken back by it because it's such a strong picture of the crucifixion. It goes on to say, they, uh, it says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. It's exactly what happened to Jesus and there's no way he could have fulfilled this prophecy uh, on his own. Later on, they may come back and figure out ad hoc ideas. They don't have any evidence for it, but they try to figure out, well, maybe that didn't really happen and it was added in later on. They're just trying to figure things out. But this is an amazing prophecy. And I think that David probably is going through something severe and writes this out. And as he does it, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he gives him this absolutely amazing prophecy. So that's what I think. Albert, thank you very much. It's good to see you uh, for your question. Our next question comes from Barbara. Barbara says, Pastor, I'm wondering what you think about people changing the Lord's Prayer from lead us not into temptation to let us fall, fall into temptation, or let us not fall into temptation. I believe this reasoning for that is that he said God does not lead us into temptation. Satan does. I think it's problematic. I think anytime that you want to change the word of God, you are, you know, I, I talked about not being arrogant earlier. You know, stay humble, love Jesus, right? And anytime that you're, I, I think I can make the word of God better. I think I can understand it better. I think I can change this and, and solve a problem in the scriptures. I think that is massively problematic because God's word is rich, richer than we even begin to understand. When you're reading through the Bible, you come across, I come across passages that I have taught. I started teaching the Bible in the early 80s and I've come across passages that I've taught several times, not only teaching through the Bible, but ones that I've chosen to teach on while not teaching through the Bible. And I've taught through the Bible three times, almost completed the fourth time through the scriptures. And I'll come across the passage. That's studying, teaching. And I'll come across the passage and all of a sudden it's like a light bulb. All of a sudden I'll understand something that's there. And so I think it's really problematic for us to come in and try to change God's word. Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let that sink in. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's like the Spirit of God and the devil working together, but they weren't working together. 
what God was doing was bringing Jesus to a test. It wasn't God that tested him, but the Spirit drove him out so that he could be tempted. And that test turned into a temptation for Jesus. And that's what happens in our lives. We are led into certain parts of our lives. We're following the Spirit and, and God means it to test us and it turns into a temptation and Satan uses that against us. And so I think it's incredibly proper to pray, lead us not into temptation. We should pray it because Jesus told us to. And that doesn't mean that we're being tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anyone. I don't think that there's even a problem with these two scriptures. I think if, there, if people think there's a problem, that's just because they think there is. There's not. God doesn't tempt anyone. Lead us not into temptation. And so God can lead us into areas where we are tempted by our own flesh, by our own desires, we're tempted by the devil. And so to pray that God would lead us through our lives into places where we are not tempted. Because the more we face temptation, the more temptation that we, we run into, the more likely it is that we're going to fail in one of those temptations. It should be part of our regular prayer. Deliver us from the evil one, right? Lead us not into temptation. Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this manner. Doesn't mean that you pray this prayer repeating it, although there's no problem with it if you pray it meaningly, meaningfully. In other words, if you're just praying it, you know, 10 times, our Father, our heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, give us a day our daily bread. Doesn't mean anything. You're, 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 and in fact, before Jesus gave this prayer in Matthew, he says, don't be like the heathens who think they're heard for their many words. So don't repeat any prayer just because you think that repeating this prayer is powerful. The prayer of Jabez, um, um, you know, the, the Mother Mary's, the, 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 our Father. Don't just repeat them thinking that somehow they're going to magically help you, but mean them. Our Father in heaven. We have a dad in heaven who loves us and cares for us. Th pray and mean it. I can, I can quote it exactly, but I can pray it with fervency and I can pray it with meaning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation. See, I can pray it with great meaning every step of it. And God will honor that in my life if I pray it that way. Um, you know, love Jesus, stay humble. Maybe God's just speaking to me about arrogance. Um, a lot of times on social media, here we are on social media, right? And a lot of times people will leave comments on social media. They'll make a statement like they understand something and they know it. And, and it's just arrogance. And when I read it, I think, Lord, help me that I'm not, that I don't approach your word that way, that I'm not arrogant. Like I've got all the answers. Like my, what I believe is the absolute right thing. There are many things in the Bible that I don't understand. There are many things that, that I'm not sure about. There are many things that I have to say, this is what I believe, but I'm not sure what God says. And I think that we ought to approach it that way. Um, I love 2 Timothy 2, what is it, 24 through 26, uh, that says that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be humble, gentle to all, um, willing to teach 
that you would turn them from the error of their ways. But I got kind of got a new verse, and that's Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Love Jesus, stay humble, don't change the scriptures. <laughs> don't think I've got a better understanding than what the Bible says, than, than, than God who brought us these manuscripts and preserved his word from generation to generation, all right? Uh, approach God's word with a great deal of humility. And when you're interacting with people online, bring, bring, humble, bring humility. It's okay to say, I don't think that this passage is saying what you say it's saying. Sounded like the Princess Bride there. I don't think this means what you think it means. Inconceivable, right? But stay humble and say, I think this is what it is. I believe this is what it is. I believe this is what it means. When there are two, three, four views on something and you have a view, you may be right, but it's always good to be humble and to show love and gentleness to people that have other positions. Because if they're wrong, they're more likely to respond if you're gentle and you're humble. And don't change the word of God. All right, Barbara, thank you so much. It's good to see you. Um, really glad uh, that you're here with us and thank you for your question. Uh, it's a really powerful question. All right, so uh, Jari, good to see you. Hope you're doing well. Jari says, do you know God's name? Is God a title as well as Satan? I was watching the Bible project. I love the Bible Project. Uh, I think um, I I think they're great. Tim Mackey, I think, is uh, the guy who does most of them, or, or is the guy, the head guy of the Bible Project. Um, and I would suggest that if if you've never heard them, you've never watched them, that you would spend some time watching them. It's going to give you some insight and a new way to think about a lot of passages in the Bible. It doesn't mean again that Tim Mackey is right. It simply means that you're looking at someone who looks at certain passages in a fresh and a different way. And I often encourage people to watch the Bible Project uh, even though I don't agree with everything that they say. Hey, it's in-house discussions, right? There, there are things that we believe that are different and that's okay. So um, Satan means the opposer right? It's not a name. Um, Satan means the opposer. The devil means the accuser. Uh, so these are Greek and Hebrew words that talk about what he is and describe him. I've talked before about Lucifer not being his name. Lucifer is Latin for the morning star for Venus. Satan wanted to exalt his throne above the throne of God and God mocks him. God mocks Satan, the arch enemy by saying, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. You wanted to be the morning star? And that's why, why is Jesus called the morning star and Satan called the morning star? That's mind boggling because Satan wanted to be the morning star. But how you have fallen from heaven, O bright and morning star. See, it's mocking him. Um, God's name, the, the name Elohim in the Bible, El meaning God, Im being plural is also used to speak of uh, uh, Samuel coming out of the grave as an Elohim, as a spirit. Um, and there are others in the Bible, in Psalms, judges are called Elohim. God tells them, you are Elohim. 
but you are going to die like men. And he's talking about their position of authority. And so, the word Elohim, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, right? Um, doesn't just mean God. There's other places in the Bible where it's used to speak of other things. But the name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, it's those four consonants, the tetragrammaton. And I, and I love that. When we get to, um, when we get to 10,000 uh, subscribers on YouTube, uh, we're going to make some t-shirts that have the name of God on it, Yahweh. Um, Y-H-W-H. And we don't know the consonants, so we don't know exactly how it was uh, spelled out. My wife read to me something that I've heard a long time ago that when Y-H-W-H is like the sound of breathing, that you're like, Yahweh, when you breathe. Um, I don't know about that, that every person breathing is breathing the name of God. I'm skeptical about that. But the name Yahweh, I am, the ever-existent one, came from the burning bush right? When Moses said, who should I say sent me? And it's the name of God that the Israelites wouldn't, wouldn't write out and wouldn't mention. They would say the name when they would say the name of God. So, no, um, God's name is not a title like Satan, although there are a lot of different names of God in the Bible. Jesus said, I am in the garden and the guards fell down backwards. Jesus had seven I am's in the book of John. I am the light. Um, I am the door. Um, I am the bread of life. So there were seven of them that were there. Um, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Claiming to be the I am. So Jesus claimed to be Yahweh. Um, and I think that's the best way to pronounce it, by the way. Uh, it could be slightly different, but that doesn't matter. We've lost the exact pronunciation of the name of God because the Jews were so respectful that they either replaced it with Adonai, which means Lord in Hebrew, or the Tetragrammaton. And um, it's literally the name of God. God is the ever-existent one. By the time I say, if I say I am, by the time I say I am, it's in the past. It's I was. But God has always been and always will be. God created time and he's outside of the realm of time. That's so important for us to understand. And there's so much about God that we don't understand. All right. So I'm not sure how the Bible project would talk about the Tetragrammaton. If I came across a video that said um, of the Bible project that said, this is the name of God. I kind of had the Tetragrammaton there. I would listen to it. I'd watch it to see what they had to say about it. All right, so um, a lot of good stuff that comes from them. Um, I know that Tim Mackey likes Dr. Is it Heiser or Heisler? One of those two. Um, and he's got a lot of great stuff too. I, again, there'd be a lot of things I wouldn't agree with them on, but there are a lot of things that I agree with them on. And we can learn from a lot of different people. And these guys, um, Tim Mackey, Heiser, are in incredibly knowledgeable, have done a lot of studying on the Word of God, and there's a lot that we can glean from them. Remember, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and prophets are gifts to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. These are men that God have given us today to equip us for the work of the ministry that God has given us. So, really, really good stuff. Um, continue to uh, 
to watch these things and ask these questions, Jari. I think you're doing great. All right. So thank you very much. Um, all right. We um, welcome Keith. Uh, Keith is one of our moderators. Good to see you, Keith. Um, and Daniel as well, who is here as one of our moderators. Um, I see another question here from Barbara. Barbara, I may come back to your question. Uh, we're trying just to do one question per person right now. And then we take questions that were asked and we put them as the first question later on in a, in a podcast. So I might come back to your question. Um, but let me go ahead and take another question here. And this uh, question says, um, question, Pastor, what do you believe about deliverance ministry and the casting out of demons? Thank you. Um, I was watching a Q&A by uh, Mike Winger where he talked about binding and loosing here recently. And I liked what he said. He said, there are two extremes when it comes to demons and demons at work in Christians' lives and demons in the world. The one extreme is that they are everywhere and the other extreme is that they are nowhere. And I thought, that's really good. I like that. Um, I think that the deliverance movements often go too far. Everything is a demon and everybody needs to go through deliverance. What I'm looking for when it comes to how I interact in spiritual warfare, which is a very real thing. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians says, but against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. And what I'm looking for in spiritual warfare is how to effectively battle against the devil and see people one to Christ. I think that the enemy does attack. I think he's a tempter. I, I, I believe that we have to be careful. But I also have friends. Again, they're friends and they have a belief and they might have, one of them has an experience in his life where he was delivered from a demon and I don't remember all the details, so I'm not gonna tell you the story. If I remembered all the details, I would tell you. But I have seen it. I have came out of the Pentecostal and charismatic churches that were part of the deliverance movement where they boss Satan around. I tell Satan to climb up. I lived in Albuquerque. Um, I told Satan to climb up to the crest. That's the very top of the Sandia Mountains in Albuquerque. I told Satan to climb up to the crest and climb back down. Climb that telephone pole and back down a hundred times just so he couldn't harass people. And I'm even at like 18, 19 years old. I thought, right. You think Satan's climbing up and down a pole a hundred times because you told him to. And that's just silly, silliness. And I've seen people take people into a room, pray for them for four and five hours, wear them out until they're finally talking in the, the second person, leave them alone, they're mine, you know, those kind of things. And people take that as being, well, there was a devil inside of them. No, you got them in a room and talked to them like there was a devil inside of them for four hours. And they finally were like, I got to get out of here. And they talked like there was a demon inside of them and went through this idea like they were delivered from it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I, I'm not saying that Satan can't oppress you. And I'm not saying some of you might not be oppressed by the enemy, but people use oppression because they don't want to say possession. And then they use 
possession language to talk about those that are talking about being oppressed. So they're just trying to lighten things up so they can use whatever they want to use, say whatever they want to say, as if it's possession, as if someone is possessed. I do believe that we should pray that God would bind the enemy in the lives of our children. That God, that when there's something going on and you find yourself struggling with some addiction, to say, God, help me here. I need and, and deliver me from this and deliver me from the enemy. Those are good, solid prayers to be asking. However, when people make righteous living, living for Jesus all about deliverance, I have a problem with that. And that if you really want to live for Jesus, you really want to live wholeheartedly for him, then you've got to be delivered. Let us deliver you. If that were the case, don't you think that we would see that happening in the book of Acts? We would see God delivering Christians from Satan in the book of Acts. Examples of what the Christian life would be like. And don't you think that we would see that in the epistles? Letters about the theology of the Christian life. Letters to churches and individuals about how to live for Christ. Corrective letters. And we would see them saying, make sure that you pray for people that they would be delivered from the enemy. That they're oppressed. You gotta, you know, we would have those examples and we would have it. So if it's extra biblical, not meaning that it's anti-biblical, although I think I might be able to make a case that that's anti-biblical, meaning that the Bible speaks against it. But if it's extra biblical, it's outside of the Bible, be very careful with it. And certainly don't make, don't make it a major theme in your Christian walk if it's not in the Bible. The Bible says, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture has been given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Everything I need comes from the word of God. If I don't take anything that isn't in the word of God, I have everything I need in the word of God. Doesn't mean that there might not be something that could help you, but everything you need comes from the word of God. That's really powerful. It helps us with life and godliness, everything in God's word. That's why we read it and we memorize it. And we, when we, we have a question about something, we go to God's word for that question. And we're gonna save ourselves from being deceived. Um, let me also say about these deliverance ministries, some of them, some of them, not all of them are not genuine. Some of them are taking advantage of people. Deliverance ministries um, are often just trying to make money. I, I, let, me, let me reword that. I want to reword it correctly. Deliverance ministries sometimes are about making money. And that's always a problem. Just like the healing ministries of people is about making money. They declare people healed who later on die and they collect money from people saying that they have the gift of healing. And that is wicked. It's wicked to take advantage of sick and dying people for your own financial gain.
Let me go ahead and Gomer pile you if you're a faith healer and you're doing this to people. Shame on you. <laughs> Truly, shame on you. You shouldn't be doing those kind of things to people. You should be having compassion and you should be walking in the truth and you're doing it to make money. And sometimes deliverance ministries can do that as well. And I'll say that's just deliverance ministries who are doing it for money. Shame on you. Shouldn't be doing it for that. You should be looking to truly, really help people. All right. So thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, it's uh, again, good to see you guys here. If you have a question, then you can write your question out. Uh, you can uh, put a question mark or a question in front of it, reread it a couple of times, make sure uh, that uh, your question is clear, and then go ahead and submit it. We have our, our next question comes from Annika. Annika, good to see you. She says, what are your thoughts on God's will? Is his will something we should be zealously searching for? All right. Um, yes. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your question, Annika. I appreciate that. So, um, I just quoted a scripture in a message uh, the other day about um, thankfulness. That this is the will of God for you. That you would be thankful. That's part of God's will. The Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and in fact, let me just go ahead and go there. Let me go there. I want to read that passage to you because it will give us some clarity about how we search for God's will. Um, I'm trying to stop saying um when there's silence, by the way. Just let silence be silence, Robert. Just let it be silence, which I'm not doing right now. I'm talking, continuing to talk. But it's okay to be silent. All right, so um, let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So we're to give, we're to sacrifice for God. And our lives are to be a sacrifice. Like, a, like an animal that's set on an altar and burned up, our lives are to be a sweet-smelling aroma of sacrifice to God. We're giving things up for Him. And then it says in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The world is trying to conform you. They're trying to conform you into their thoughts. It's happening even more so today. They don't want you to be different than them. And so they're trying to conform you. And the church is, uh, some of the church is conforming to this world, but we're to be transformed by the power of God. So it says, um, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So Annika, there are people who teach that this last section, good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is three different wills that God has for you. So he has his, his good will. You're looking for someone to marry. Well, that person would be good for you. Then you got his acceptable will. Well, that person would be acceptable for you. Then you have his perfect will. Now you've, you've hit the dartboard right in the middle. You got a bullseye. You, got, you have God's perfect will for your life. I don't believe that that's what it's saying. People, you know, what car does God want me to buy? I'm going to be buying a new car here pretty soon. What color does God want me to get? Uh, should I 
fret over the color of the car and the kind of car or should I get one that I want, one that I like? Um, what town should I live in? What house should I live in? Now, don't get me wrong. I think that there are things that Christians, that, that me as a pastor and as a Christian shouldn't drive. Right? There are cars that, that would be too flashy, too expensive, and would cause people to stumble. Shouldn't drive them. So don't get me wrong. I, I am looking for God's will there. But when it comes down to the color of the car or the exact car, I think we have some leeway there. Um, what town should we live in? I, I don't think that God cares so much about what town you live in as he cares about how you live in God's will in that town. God doesn't care so much about what car you drive as much as he cares about how you live in that car. That's what's important to him. And so what, what woman should you marry? Now, there, there may, and God through his providence may bring you to just the right person. But I think what God cares about more than what person you marry, although I'm not saying God doesn't care about that, I think he cares more about what you're like as a husband or what you're like as a wife. That you're living the life that God wants you to live. That's God's will. And that Romans 12, 1 and 2 is saying, don't be afraid of God's will. Don't be afraid to say, Lord, I want your will. I'm going to seek your will. I want to be in the will of God because, and be transformed by these things because God's will is good, it's acceptable, and it is perfect. Those are three characteristics of God's will rather than three types of God's will. God's will is good. It's good for me. That's going to be the best thing for me. If I can find God's will, it's good for me and it's acceptable. When I was young and my sister was, had moved to Venezuela, she sent me, she called me up one day and she said, Robert, I was thinking of you today. I said, oh yeah? She goes, yeah. I came home and there was a plate-sized spider on my screen door. And I thought, oh great, I'm, right? I'm, I'm pretty young at this point, um, 17 maybe. Oh great, God's going to send me to Venezuela because there's plate-sized spiders. Like thinking that God's will for me is sending me somewhere to do something I don't want to do or live in a place where there's plate-sized spiders. So instead, he sends me to Arizona where there's brown recluses that are one of the most deadliest spiders that are there, that there are around. Um, I don't know, I may have been bitten by a brown recluse as well. I had a spider bite that a red line started up my arm and turned towards my heart. And I went to the doctor and it was during one of our pastor's conferences several years ago. And uh, the doctor put me on two different antibiotics and said, I don't know what it is, but I don't like it. I don't know why there's a red line going towards your heart, but I don't like it. And she put me on really strong antibiotics to stop it. Um, but God's will is good. It's acceptable and it's perfect for me. It's perfect. It's exactly what I need. And God's will for you, Annika, is, is good and acceptable and perfect. And you should be seeking it, but seek it with some faith. Believing that God's big enough to lead you in the right way being willing to change your mind. So I will prayerfully consider which car I should buy. And once I make that prayerful decision, if God wants to redirect me, then he's big enough to do that. I'll prayerfully pray. When I was thinking about asking Kathy to marry me, I prayerfully considered and sought God as to whether or not I should ask her because there, it, it might not have been God's will. God might have 
it just might not have been God's will for me. And so I prayerfully considered it. And then when I decided that I was going to ask her, and it's one thing when you ask somebody to marry you when you're 20 years old, like the first time that I was married for my, my, my late wife. It's another thing when you're, what, well, how old was I when I asked Mary, Kathy to marry me in my 50s? Um, it's another thing when you're in your 50s and you're asked somebody to marry you. And, you know, I, I was just terrified that I would make a mistake. And so I prayerfully sought God's will, prayerfully made a decision to ask her to marry me with an open heart that God could correct me. God's big enough. He could come in and say, don't marry this gal. This is not the one for you. But she is the one for me. It's the one that God had chosen. And I think that that's the way we should approach everything that we're doing. Prayerfully make decisions, listening to God, using the scriptures as our guideline. If the Bible talks about it, then you read the, use the scriptures as your guideline uh, and you try to be in the will of God. But, but you can get so obsessed with being in the will of God, Annika, that you end up being frozen. You end up not being able to do anything because you want to be in the will of God. So prayerfully make decisions and then be willing that God's big enough. If you, if you made the wrong decision, God can come in and show you that you've made the wrong decision. So thank you for your question, Annika. I hope that that is helpful. I know that this is something that I have um, grown in my life over the years and something that I have gotten a much better understanding for how to live in God's will. I want to be in God's will. And when the Bible says something is God's will for us, then we want to be in it like thankfulness. Make sure that you're thankful. God wants us as Christians to come from the place of a thankful heart because this is the will of God for you. All right, so thank you for your question, Annika. I really appreciate that. I hope you have a great day and I will see you later on. So we have a question from Stacy. Stacy says, uh, I am still, um, question, I'm still confused about the Trinity. Welcome to the club, Stacy, right? And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by welcome to the club here in a moment. I always feel like I'm praying to Jesus and always say in Jesus' name, amen, at the end. Then I remember I'm praying to God. God is Jesus, but Jesus is um, his son. This has always confused me. Then the Holy Ghost. And to that question, I would say, right, right. And, and, and so I, I have the same thing. It, Jesus said, ask the Father. So when I'm praying to Jesus, I always think, am I supposed to be praying to the Father when I'm praying to Jesus? But I think that we have examples of people praying to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost in the scriptures. So that's really important because the Bible's giving us direction. And the Trinity is something, God, God created this world. He's outside of time, space, and matter. He, he measures the universe with the span of his hand. The universe, 13.5 billion years that way and 13.5 billion years that way. And God measures it with the span of his hand. He created time. He created matter, right? All the stuff that's around us. And we live in it. We're moving in this world. And so that God, and this is a fancy theological word, that God is transcendent, meaning that we don't understand him completely, is not surprising. When I was younger, I used to have fish tanks. And I would walk in to fit the fish tank I created, 
And it's funny because when I was a teenager, when I thought when I get older, I'm gonna have this great fish tank in my house, you know? And um, there's so much trouble that I don't have one. I'm like, I don't wanna spend my time cleaning, worrying about a fish tank. So, so I didn't have one as I got older. But when I would walk in to feed them, they would all swim over to the edge, right where, where I was and feed them. They knew about me. They maybe understood that I was their source of food. Like we might understand that God's our source of breath. And, but they didn't understand me. They didn't know that I went to work. They didn't know that I went and rode a motorcycle to work. They, they didn't know, they, they didn't know about me. They couldn't understand me. Their little bitty fish brains couldn't look at me and understand me. And so what makes us think that our human brains are going to be able to comprehend God? There are things that can help. God's like a cherry pie cut into three pieces and oozes back together. But there's ways in which God is not like a cherry pie. God's like a clover. One clover, three leaves. But there's way in which God is not like a clover. God's like an egg, a shell, a yolk, the white. But there are ways that God's not like an egg. And all of those analogies, God's like, like water, uh, ice, and vapor. But there's ways in which God is not like that. So all of the analogies that people use fall short. All of the analogies. You can come up with analogies that may help you kind of grasp that, but the Trinity is none of those things. And so theologians have come up with a way to state the Trinity that would help us understand it. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one in essence and three in persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, but they are all together one. Now, gears in my head start slipping when I repeat what men much smarter than me who have thought a whole lot harder than I have about the Trinity still kind of give us this kind of lingo that we go, I don't understand. But that's okay because God is, God is great and his ways are not our ways. And for us to not understand him is okay. Now, some people have real trouble with that. Some people are like, I cannot, I won't believe in someone that I can't understand. Well, that doesn't make him not true. You have the freedom to say that. You have the freedom to live that way, but that doesn't make it not true. I think, uh, Stacy, this is just something that you're gonna have to go, I don't understand it. There's plenty of things. I mean, I find all kinds of things that I say that with. All right, I kind of got a grasp on it, but I don't understand it. The Trinity is one of those areas that cults have been able to grab onto because it's so hard to understand. They come up with their own ideas, modalism and, and different kind of thoughts about the Trinity, which are problematic to the scriptures and sometimes puts them outside of Christianity because uh, the Bible talks about people who teach a different Jesus and so when you start to change the idea and concept of the Trinity, and cults love to take things that are confusing, the idea of hell, um, the Trinity, um, other, uh, the last days, prophecy, they love to take things that are confusing 
and use those to try to bring people in and act like they have clarity and they end up with something that in the end is blasphemous. And, and we cannot accept it as being the gospel. So this is just something that you try your best to understand it, search the scriptures, you find the complexity of God in the Bible, let us make man in our own images, image in Genesis chapter one, right in the beginning of the Bible. Who's us? And, and people say, well, that's the council. Uh, we would talk about Tim Mackey, right? Uh, the Bible project. Well, that's this heavenly council that rules in the heavenlies. God gave man dominion over the earth and God wanted to rule the earth with men and men gave their dominion to Satan and God has this council that helps them to rule in heaven. Well, that's great, that may be true. Probably is, as I read it. However, let us make man in our own image. You're just saying that we are created in the image of a spirit being instead of in the image of Almighty God? In the law, when God said, if a man takes a man's life, you will put him to death because man was made in the image of God. We're not made just in the image of a spirit. We're made in the image of, of Yahweh, of God. And so um, we're going to have things we don't understand. We're going to have things that we go, I don't, I don't quite get it. And you just, you just got to have things. And, and, I, and I learned this very early from, from Chuck Smith, uh, the founder of Calvary Chapel. He used to say, I got a shelf in my brain with a lot of things on it I don't understand. And if someone like Pastor Chuck, who knew the Bible so well and spent so many years teaching it, had things he didn't understand, then certainly I'm going to have things that I don't understand. And, and I think if anybody thinks that they've got it all figured out, got God all figured out, again, we're back to the arrogance thing. All right. So let me take another question here before we wrap things up. Thank you, Stacy. I really appreciate you joining us and I appreciate uh, your question. Uh, so um, let's go ahead and find another question to bring in here. I remember that we did have a question. Um, all right, so let's bring in this one from All Pink. Uh, good to see you, All Pink. All Pink says, you said uh, that a Christian can't have a demon because they have the Holy Spirit, yet you have the mind of Christ but still have negative thoughts. They aren't yours coming in. All right, so thank you all pink for um, just kind of talking about that. It's good to clarify that. Um, having thoughts that are different from the mind of Christ is not the same as your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being inside of you. Um, we are given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a seal from God, and our bodies are the temple, and the Holy Spirit is in us. You are possessed by the Spirit. Having the mind of Christ means you are thinking like Christ instead of thinking like this world. And, and so, you know, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, speaking of the devil. So I don't believe that they are the same, I think that they are different. Thank you, All Pink. I really appreciate that. Let me go down here. I'm going to grab one more question. Uh, we have a question from Requia. Requia, good to see you. Hello, Pastor. I've tried fasting for my son and dad, 
and their disbelief and failed miserably to seek guidance from God. How do I overcome this? I feel like God calls me uh, to fast but struggle. Thank you, Requia, for asking this question. And let me spend a little bit of time. I know we're at the end of our time here, but let me spend a little bit of time on this question because I think it can be very helpful. When I first started to try to fast, I would decide I'm gonna fast tomorrow, I'm gonna fast for this, I'm gonna pray during the time. And I wake up in the morning thinking about food and wanting, even desiring things I didn't even like. And uh, you know, it's like, I hated it. Like I'd start craving chocolate cake. If I'm gonna eat cake, I'm gonna eat like a vanilla, strawberry, or an angel food cake. That's just what I like. But I'm, I'm craving something that is not even what I normally prefer. So I really struggled with fasting, but I got better at it. Here's how I did it. And I'm just telling you my experience now, all right? So I'm just saying this is how I did it. Um, because I had such struggle fasting, I would fast from dinner to dinner instead of from breakfast to breakfast. So I would know that there's gonna come a time I'm gonna be able to eat. And I would say, require that you get up and you skip breakfast. Remember, breakfast is breakfast, break fast. So you're breaking your fast. So if you stop eating at eight o'clock at night and then you don't eat until late in the morning, that's 12 hours. You fasted for 12 hours. So now just add another four to it and fast till 12 and pray during that time. Your body will begin to get used to not having food right away. And I, I speak from experience now. There's a time yet I couldn't get up and not eat. I might would be famished. I would be sitting at 9.30 in the morning thinking, I gotta eat something. Um, but now I can go, I can go till dinner easily. I can go a whole day without eating, seeking God, uh, fasting. Um, and it's become something much, much easier for me. So it's kind of like anything else. You gotta kind of train yourself to it. You gotta kind of begin to do it. Um, once you get to where you can fast and pray for your family and for their unbelief or for something that strikes you, then add a little time to it. Go to one o'clock, go to two o'clock, go to dinner time, then push dinner back. Eat dinner at seven or eight and fast the entire day. And, and you'll get to the place where you can go through the whole day. It's meant to be a sacrifice. It doesn't mean you're not gonna be hungry, but you learn that that hunger isn't gonna kill me. And, and again, we're driven by our, our, we're driven by our drives, by our body drives. And so when we get hungry, we wanna eat. And I think that you're gonna be able to do it. I think you're gonna be able to fast for them. And thank you for asking this question, because I think it's a question a lot of people struggle with. It's like fasting, if I don't fast, then you know my blood sugar gets low and I get weird, I get dizzy, I get, yeah, that, that's all true. But you can get used to that. You can get used to not eating in between meals. You can get used to skipping a meal. You can get used to fasting for a day or two days or three days. The hunger leaves at some point and even the dizziness because your body adjusts and begins to eat your, your fat, the ketones. And I'm not saying your fat, Rokaya. Um, we all have fat that is a resource that our body can go to. 
it just eats carbs easier. And so when you're eating, it, it, it transfers carbs over to sugar, puts that into your blood and now you have energy and you don't feel dizzy, you don't feel lightheaded anymore. But your body adjusts and begins to eat itself. It begins to eat, feed on the fat that's in your body and there's benefits to that. There's something called autophagy. There's benefits to fasting and autophagy is one of them where your body begins to um, replenish itself. When you fast for, I think it's over 16 hours, um, you, your body begin, your, your brain works better on ketones than it does on, um, on uh, carbs. So it's, it's something that you, gotta, you can work into. You don't have to, it, it's like working out. When I decided, you know, if I don't work out for a while and I said, I'm get back into working out. So I go to the gym and I just lift a lot of weight and I work out my entire body and I wake up the next morning and I'm really sore. I'm like, ah, oh, gosh, I'm so sore. Never doing that again. I'm not working out anymore. Well, it's because I approached it wrong. When I haven't worked out in a while and I'm determined that I'll work out the rest of my life, that's what I tell myself. I'm, I'm going to always work out. So there's no reason for me to do it all right today. I can lift light because the next time I'll add a little weight. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So I, I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to kill myself trying to work out. I'm going to add weight and you get stronger and you start to realize, hey, I'm going to lift, put more weight on and you lift more and, and you've worked your way into it. And that happens with fasting. I'm going to fast. And so all of a sudden I'm going to fast for three days for my family. And then you're, you're, you don't, you can't do it and you give up. So come back in, take something that you can handle, fast a, a, a breakfast. Um, Daniel fasted pleasant food. So you can say, you know what? I'm just gonna have water and, and bread today. I'm gonna have that for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It may be boring, but you can fast pleasant food. There's different kinds of fasting that you can do. And I think that it will be helpful. So I hope that this is really helpful. This is actually a question require that I wanna put at the beginning of a future Q&A because I think it's something that people struggle with so much. And I think it is something that is so helpful for our, for your son, for your dad, that you fast and pray and seek for them. All right. So it's been really good spending this time with you guys. I hope you guys are blessed. I hope you stay close to Jesus. I hope that God uses you in really strong and powerful ways. Pray for Russia not to invade Ukraine. And if it happens, pray for the people that are involved in war. War is one of those horrible, awful things. So pray for these people. Pray that God would intervene. Pray that we wouldn't have a world that would be heading towards more and more war. It's going to happen. Jesus said it would happen. But here we have a specific situation. And our prayers make a difference. Prayers change destinies. So be praying for them and maybe even fasting for them. Fasting for these poor people that it looks like are about to have their lives turned upside down. Could you imagine? Could you imagine having your city invaded with by war, having planes bomb, having soldiers marching in, having sons and fathers going out to war and never coming back? So pray for them, fast for them, all right? Stay close to Jesus, love him and stay humble. Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. 
and, and, and God's will for you is to be thankful. Even if you're going through a really difficult time and there's, there's horrible things that are happening in your life and you're even grieving, be thankful for the things that God has done. All right. So thank you for sharing this time with me. I really appreciate you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and sign out and we will see you guys. Hey, a couple of hours, we're going to have a church service. Um, we're talking about Jesus, talking about the last days in Luke chapter 17, 20 through 37. It's a great section of scripture. And um, he talks about what the last days are going to be like. And this is really good for us because I think we're living in the last days. Um, may God give us more time for more people to get saved. But it sure seems like everything is aligning, right? All, all the things the Bible talks about the last days are going to be like are taking place and happening and everything is aligning. And we'll be talking about that in just two hours. You can join us for that. All right. God bless you guys. I'm signing out now. 